Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Stephanie Valance, filling in for Caitlin Dwyer. Ricky was born in 1993 in China, but was adopted when she was four years old by a white American family living in SeaTac, Washington. Her roots would eventually lead her back to China and her birth family in a series of life-changing events. In this remarkable journey of self-discovery, Ricky learns to navigate her identity as a daughter of two different families in two different countries. Olivia Wolf, who is an adoptee herself, has her story. Ricky can recall two memories from her early childhood in China. My first memory was sitting in the back of a bicycle. There's a man in front of me. I see his back. And there's an umbrella above us. It's raining in the city. And there's like a basket in front of him. And I later found out that was my birth father taking me to and from the home and the restaurant that my birth parents used to own. And then the second memory that I have is a not-so-pleasant one. That one is, I think I was really hungry, and I stole baby milk powder, and I got caught, and I just remember getting hit with brooms in the orphanage. Ricky had no understanding of her rapidly changing circumstances, but soon after, a couple in the United States adopted her. Ricky's new family encouraged her to stay in touch with her Chinese background through Chinese school and the organization Families with Children from China, FCC. However, she struggled to adapt to her new environment. In terms of my behavioral health, I definitely had a lot of issues. I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was on antidepressants in my single digits. I had a psychiatrist and a therapist. Because of all of the issues that I experienced, my teeth were rotted. And I also had, I think they call it strabismus, or basically one of my eyes were um, more relaxed than the other. So I had to have eye surgery to fix that. There were quite a lot of physical and behavioral issues that I had coming here. My parents here had so much patience and love in kind of making sure that I could grow up successfully. Ricky grew up with eight siblings. Four were the adult children from her parents' previous marriages. The others were adopted. Two were from China and two were from Vietnam, none biologically related to each other. When Ricky was seven, her family went to adopt her younger sister from China. It was at this time that Ricky began to rediscover her past. When we went to adopt Rebecca, my little sister, we stopped by my orphanage. And we gave the officials there quite a lot of gifts from the Families with Children in China Seattle group. And they showed us the person I was with before I was sent to the orphanage, which was Madame Fan. When we met Madame Fan, there were government officials in the room. So my parents here knew that she probably wasn't telling the whole story because they had the story about me being found at a train station, but they didn't really believe it. It was only after we returned to the United States that we received a letter from her. She kind of made this story that I was her granddaughter, I was her daughter's daughter, and then she asked us for money, $10,000. I was not aware of any of that. And even though she said that, we were still a little skeptical. In all honesty, I was quite happy with my family here. I didn't really care that much to know. 
Then, when Ricky was nine years old, she received another letter from a different couple claiming to be her true birth parents. It was very sincere and kind, and that's when I started getting more interested. They called me by a name that I, I didn't recognize because I was told my Chinese name was Zhang Nan, and it said, Dear Little Meng Ting. And so that made me wonder, like, oh, is that my name? And then apparently, from what I was told as a summary from my parents, it was just an explanation of how they were my birth parents and the situation that led me here. The situation was far from what Ricky and her family had imagined. My parents didn't put me up for adoption. So the situation in China, when I was born, one child policy was still implemented. You could have another child, but if you had a second child, you had to pay a hefty fine. And my parents were not rich enough for that. And so they gave birth to me out of wedlock. And then they were told by my nai nai or my birth father's mom that she wanted a son because sons are better than daughters. This is a very traditional sexist aspect of Chinese culture because men are prized more. And so the son was considered stronger for a rural family that lives on the farms. When my little brother Chow was born is when they got married, Chow got the quota, which made me the illegal invisible child. And if you're illegal, that means you don't have access to anything. You don't have a record in the system. You can't go to school. So obviously it's a problem. And my birth parents actually wanted to keep me. So what they did was they made a deal with a woman in the mountains who had a son who was childless. And the deal was that if they took care of me and made me legal and I would have the quota for that son for the one child, in return, they would be paid every month to take care of me. But after around 100 days... Birth control officials were notified of me, and I was seized and taken to the orphanage. And so my birth parents, to this day, blame that woman, we call her Madame Fan, for that. We think Madame Fan turned me in because you you would get money for turning in kids, even if it was a small sum. But they were in a very desperate living situation and living in poverty. Although Ricky was sent to the orphanage, her parents didn't give up on her. My birth mom had connection to the orphanage I was in. My birth father tried to sneak me out a few times, and then one day I wasn't there. So my birth mom used this connection to kind of ask them where I could be, and the information they had was that I was most likely adopted by a couple in the United States. And so they had said, well, that's odd. We'll never see her again. And then they hear that Madame Fawn is receiving mail-in packages from the United States. So they went to investigate. They contacted Madame Fawn somehow and asked her for the address to contact me. According to my birth mom, she would not give them any contact information, saying everybody was trying to claim me as their child because I was adopted by Americans, which is like a gold mine there. But basically, her son, I think, took pity on my parents because they were saying, you know, how would you feel if your child was taken away from you for what you thought was forever, and then now you get a chance to see them again? So he took pity and slipped an empty envelope that she had opened with my address to them. And they had copied the address off that envelope and written me that letter. It was a miracle that the letter arrived to Ricky's home, as the city wasn't even written correctly. Instead of SeaTac, it said Simi. The letter was also written entirely in Chinese. By fortune, a Chinese friend who could translate happened to be living in Ricky's home at the time. Ricky's American parents were thrilled to connect with her biological family. As open-hearted people, it was never a threat. The two families corresponded for a couple years before Ricky's American family decided to take a trip to China and visit her birth family for the first time since her adoption. Because my adoptive parents here were so strong about, like, finding my birth parents and, like, 
I was really scared that they were trying to like prime me to go back to China and live with my birth parents. And I had that separation anxiety and that security for a while. Ricky's anxiety heightened upon her arrival in China. I was 12 at the time. I was very lost because we, we were on this super long old train ride. And then at the end of it was supposed to be my birth parents. But I didn't even know like what they looked like. I didn't know if they were going to recognize me. So there was a lot of anxiety there. And I just remember there was this moment where I saw this couple and a little boy look at me and start running toward me. And in that moment, I just knew. I was like, oh, this is my family. And I don't know how to explain that. But I knew and they knew. And then we ran. They ran to me and we hugged. And I didn't know what they were saying because I had barely any Chinese at the time. But I just remember knowing after all of that uncertainty. It was really odd because there's a part of me that instinctively recognized them. And then there's, there's the other part of me that's very rational. And it was like, I don't know anything about these people. And they don't know anything about me. And so it was kind of at odds. I like to always come in assuming the best of people. And so I just came into this like, okay, let's see where this goes. But for my birth parents and my little brother, they were just ecstatic. I wouldn't say I loved my birth parents in that moment because I didn't really know them. I just recognized them somehow. But like the way they looked at me, the way they talked to me, even if I couldn't understand the way they touched me, like it was, everything was like, I love you, you're my daughter. Ricky did her best to adapt to her hometown in Chuzhou, China, forsaking the comforts of a common language and Western toilets. You go to China, and back then it was very much not developed in a lot of areas, and you get a hole in the ground, and you're told that's where you go. Like After the third time, it's like, well, I can't change that, so we're just going to roll with this and keep going. I think in that one week, it was a lot of trying to communicate. I would say that's the biggest thing. Because they didn't know any English, and the only pennies I knew was like, mom, dad, little brother, I love you, goodbye, and hello. That was literally my Chinese. Though Ricky's birth parents were actually divorced by this time, they made an effort to do activities together as a family during Ricky's visit. My American family were like, spend time with your birth parents. Sometimes we did as a group. Other times they wanted to give them the opportunity to spend time with me by ourselves. And so it's like literally my birth parents, my birth brother, and me, none of us speaking the same language. I remember actually one vivid memory from that trip was I was spending the night and my birth mom said she wanted to give me a shower. And, you know, to me in the U.S., the shower is like, okay, you turn on the shower head and then the water spraying at you. But what ended up happening was we went to the bathroom and then she had like a washcloth and then she just was using the washcloth with soap and water and had a bucket of water. It was very different showering experience. And that whole time she was speaking to me in Chinese. And I had no idea what she was saying. I know she was miming an airplane at some point. So I knew she was talking about me being in America. But I did actually ask her about that later on. And she was telling me that at the time she was talking about how the last time she saw me, I was two or three. And now I'm 12 and I've grown up so big and she hasn't seen me all those years. And so, you know, things like that were obviously missed at the time because I didn't know what she was saying. But the sentiment was there. I could tell that she was talking about something that was very emotional for her. Although she couldn't speak the language, Ricky found another connection to her birth family through one of her favorite pastimes, music. I've always loved music. I actually think I would be a different person if music wasn't part of my life. And I remember when I went to China that trip, and they had all of these VCDs at the time which are like kind of DVDs with like music videos on them. And there was this one song, Lao Xia Da Mi, where when it played, 
everyone in the room sang. Like Chow was singing it. My birth mom was singing it. My birth father was singing it. The translator was singing it. And I'm like, I need to learn this song. You know, like everybody that I like here that I'm cared about in China, like knows this song. And so I asked the translator to write down the pinyin lyrics for me so that I could try to sound it out and sing it. And so it's kind of our first family moment where I felt very connected to them, even though I didn't know what I was singing. But I did recognize what I need, which is in the chorus, and it means I love you. And then wa xiang ni means I miss you, right? And so I knew that this was a song about love and missing, but I didn't know anything else because my Chinese wasn't that far. But it was just a very cute family moment where all of us were singing together. At the end of that trip, my birth mom was holding onto me at the airplane, crying. My birth father was absent. He couldn't handle the emotional separation of me leaving again. And my dad had told them that I will be back when I the summer that I graduate high school, and I made that promise because actually the translator and my birth mom got in a fight when we were there. So the last day or two, we literally could not communicate with my birth parents, and that was that whole shower scene that I was talking about because the translator just quit on the spot, and I was just like, "There's no way! Like I need to be able to understand." Back in the U.S., Ricky continued living her regular life. Only speaking on the phone with her birth mom on occasion. At that point, it was just me, and it was my birth mom specifically. Like I never really heard my dad or Chow's voice on the phone, and I would say it was like once or twice a year. Like it wasn't that often, and she would call with a phone card. And I didn't speak Chinese, so really, I just sang the chorus of "Mouse Loves Rice" to her in Chinese. <laughs> it was definitely challenging, and she would try to speak to me in Chinese. She would just say "Mong Ting," I would say "Mom," and then she'd be like "Mong Ting," I'd say "Mom," you know, like. That's about it. I love you. I love you too. I miss you. I miss you too. And then silence. That's always how the calls went. Ricky studied Mandarin for two years to prepare for her next trip. After graduating high school, Ricky kept her promise and booked her first solo flight to China, where she'd be staying with her birth family for two months. This time, I was thinking I. Want to get to know this family better because I hardly know them, and it's very obvious to me that I'm important to them. Like I definitely wanted answers, but more than that, I don't believe in empty titles. So if you're my family, and if I'm your family, then I want to get to know you as family. And so that was really kind of two goals: understanding my past, and then understanding who my family is and how to get along with them. Moment I landed, my birth parents were there. We had a five-hour drive back to our town, and then there I was bombarded with meeting my mom's side of the family. It was a lot to happen in like a day. <laughs> my biggest thing was I was trying to remember what to call people because you know here in America it's like aunt and the name, uncle and the name, 
right? But in China, it's like, okay, your grandmother on your father's side is nai nai, and your grandmother on your mother's side is wai po. And it's just like based on which side of the family it is and how old they are and how they are ranked in relation to age to the other siblings. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to mess this up. I want, I want to be part of this Chinese family. I really wanted to come in like I want to belong. I think that's really what it came to. Like I know that I fit in American society for the most part. And then now this is my Chinese family. This is in my blood. This is a part of who I am. I want to be Chinese. I want to fit in as much as I can. And it was actually my birth family that was like, if I made a mistake, they'd be like, oh, she's American. It's fine. We were having dinner at my Waipo's house. So my mom's mom. And basically, they were all sitting down around the table. And then I sat down on the spot and nobody would sit next to me. This is so odd. Like normally my family always wants to be around me. And then my waigong or like my grandfather like sat on this little stool outside of the table, like a really tiny stool. And I was like, waigong, like sit here. Turned out, I found out later on that that seat where I was sitting is waigong's seat. Like he's the head of the family. That's where he's supposed to sit. And, you know, that would be considered rude if I were to take a seat, you know, from a Chinese culture perspective. But I had no idea. And everybody was like, oh, that's cute. She's American. So nobody was offended. Even Waigong was like totally chill about it. But I remember being so embarrassed when I found that out. Perhaps the family member Ricky was the most nervous to meet was her paternal grandmother, who originally rejected Ricky with the hope that her parents would conceive a son. My birth father... He really wanted me to get along with his mom. And I could tell. And my birth mother, understandably, had a lot of reservations about that because she was literally told to abandon her child, you know, by this figure. And my birth mother has loved me from the beginning. And so it was kind of a weird place to be like, okay, this will make my birth mom unhappy, but this will make my birth father extremely happy. And meanwhile, this is the the literal reason why I'm here in the US and why I was illegal in China, even though I was born first. I told my birth father, I'm really nervous. And then he had said, oh, don't be nervous. She's scared to meet you. And I was just so shook by that. I was so surprised. Like, what do you mean she's scared to meet me? Like, I'm 18 years old, this American girl. You know, like, what would be so scary about that? But it humanized her. You know, instead of being this scary head figure that holds the the decision-making helmet for my life, when I was young and helpless and couldn't do anything, I'm now older. I have a lot more life experience. My dad here told me that I have a lot of power because I'm educated. And, you know, there's a way to have mental power, right, when you come into a situation. And I get to choose how I how I view it. And what I found was actually she was very hospitable. She was trying so hard to create a positive impression on me, cooking food, giving me snacks, giving me water, looking over and smiling at me. And since then, we have a positive relationship. We can't speak very well to each other because she doesn't speak that much Mandarin and I don't speak the local dialect. But we smile at each other a lot whenever I visit China. And, you know, it doesn't need to be closer than that as long as it's just amicable, right? And we recognize that things happened, but here we both are and we're both getting along while she's living. And I think that's really all that mattered at the end of the day. One of the relationships that Ricky was most interested in developing was the one with her brother Chow. Since Ricky's visit, Chow has been living in the U.S. to pursue an education. And it is very interesting, right? Because as the son of the family, he was, you know, kind of the privileged child from a Chinese societal standpoint. But then... I'm the one who ended up more, I guess, successful, quote unquote, in terms of like the career or the academic. 
I did feel a little sad that I didn't get to be a big sister to Chow growing up. Obviously, he's never resented me for that. And I've never blamed myself for that. He didn't even know of my existence until he was, you know, 10 or whatever. I wanted to get close to my birth parents, but I really wanted that relationship with Chow. I've never had a little brother. I can be a big sister for Chow now and moving forward. And I have been in ways I've stopped my mom from hitting him (laughs) and helped him throughout his college here. So I've been supporting him as his bigger sister throughout the rest of his life. At the end of her trip, Ricky faced a difficult goodbye. My birth mom and birth father were both in the same room as me. It was while I was gearing up to leave and they both sat down with me and, you know, having them both in the room to talk to me was kind of rare because they're divorced. Now they know they're they're divorced. They don't really have to fake anything in front of me. It was just us three sitting around the room. And I still, to this day, don't understand everything they said in that conversation But what I got from it was mom and dad want to deeply apologize to you for everything we've put you through. I failed as a mom. I failed as a dad to protect my children. And I have always loved you and I love you forever. And I hope that you can forgive me for all the things that I put you through that like that level of conversation. And it was, it was emotional. Like all of us were crying. And I just remember telling them in my broken Chinese, like, you know, you did the best that you could at the time. You never tried to abandon me, you know, and the circumstances happened as they did, but I don't blame you for any of that. And I'm happy where I'm at, you know, there's nothing to apologize for. And it's just a matter of understanding who we are now and building that relationship in the future. And then that made my mom cry. And I said that, you know, I love you too. And so... That is probably one of the most, like, vibrant memories I have of the trip that's off of the film. Today, Ricky lives five minutes away from her parents in Washington with her husband. She is 28 years old and starting a new job as a user experience researcher. These days, Ricky communicates a couple times a year with her birth father and about once a month with her birth mother. But, instead of snail mail, they now message using the Chinese app WeChat. Since Ricky's summer trip as an 18-year-old, she has visited China twice. So I went in 2017 for my Chinese wedding because I had an American wedding and a Chinese wedding. My relationship with my birth parents changes every time I visit in the sense of like, I think as we spend more time together and as we talk more, we get more comfortable sharing things. So like in the beginning, you know, it was very much like how school, how's work, and then in the 2018 trip, when it was just my birth mom and I, we actually had a lot of time without the rest of the family. And then she opened up to me about some of the relationship problems she's having. And, and so I feel like our relationship has deepened since the beginning. Psychological studies actually show that the, the biggest thing that adoptive parents can influence in a child is their morality and their integrity. And I 100% agree with that. Like, I think in terms of integrity, I'm very similar to my parents here. And I really hope to be an upstanding person with a lot of integrity and treat people with honesty and respect and a lot of love. I think I have a huge heart. I think part of that has been enhanced by my mom and dad here, but also looking at the way that my birth mom is in China, she's a very passionate person. Sometimes it manifests in anger or other feelings, 
But I think at the root, at the end of the day, she's a very passionate, feeling, emotional person. And I think I have that from her. I've just learned to manage it better given my upbringing. And then I think from my birth father, he's very logical and very diplomatic, like looking at things balanced and rationally. And I'm also that as well. So I feel like I've got kind of a little bit of good from all of my parents. <laughs> I think about when I was nine and I got that letter with my birth parents and I remember thinking, oh, more family. I should learn to get to know them and get along. And then here I am today. My birth parents literally messaged me last week. <laughs> they keep asking me to go back to China. And I'm, and I'm here and I feel like more than ever, I'm a part of two cultures. Like I'm not fully Chinese. I'm not fully American. But rather than letting that be an identity crisis, I've now had the mental and emotional stability to realize that I can have the best of both worlds. Looking at it that way, I'm very happy with where I've ended up and how my story has gone. On that day I hear your voice, I have some special feelings. Let me always think, I don't want to forget you, I remember every day. You are always on my mind, and I know I only think about you. Ricky Mudd singing the English version of Mouse Loves Rice. It was recorded during production of Ricky's Promise, the documentary made in 2014 about Ricky's journey to connect with her birth family. More information can be found at rickyspromise.com. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced by Olivia Wolf with audio editing by Rick March, assisted by Greg Palmer. Our executive producer is the enchanting Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org slash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.